we, Susie and I have been out of town a couple of weeks, and so uh, just new, new arrangement here with the center aisle. I see only, I notice only one big change in how things are arranged here. There's, there's only one couple that's changed political parties from, <laughs> from the right to the left. Depends on which way you're looking at it. From up here, it's a different view, but uh, the Cates have shifted. So uh, may may be a political season. You just never know. <laughs> there are some. I won't I won't put a name on those. But anyway, they're hard right, way over there. For those of you that can't see around the corner, they're way back there. So uh, good. Well, uh, let's begin with prayer. Lord, we thank you for uh, this beautiful day you've given us. Father, thank you for. The great privilege it is together with the saints and uh, to study your word, uh, to think on, on your ways, and to think on you. Lord, help us today to do just that clearly and accurately. Uh, Lord, may we honor you in all we do. We ask your blessing on our entire morning uh, together as your church. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you know, or maybe don't know, we have a series going on and it's only occasionally. So once a month or so, we skip over to uh, picking up this little book by Kevin DeYoung, Taking God at His Word. So this is one of those interjections of, of that series. Um, uh, of course, it is about the Bible and about the doctrines of, uh, about the Word of God. Uh, I think Ryan started, the first chapter was believing, feeling, doing, and the concepts delight in it, desire it, depend on it. Uh, Rob... Uh, covered the inerrancy of Scripture a few weeks ago. Uh, Ken, uh, more recently, covered the sufficiency of Scripture. Today we're going to talk about the clarity of Scripture. And then DeYoung goes on the next four chapters that we'll cover over who knows how many weeks. Uh, God's Word is final. Uh, God's Word is necessary. And Christ's unbreakable Bible. And then finally he exhorts us to stick with the Scriptures. So that's kind of where we're headed today. Again, it's about the, the clarity of God's Word. A few days ago, uh, my daily Bible reading took me to a passage uh, in Revelation 8 that I'll read to you. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and then it goes on to more trumpets. So I read reading that, and I thought to myself, that's, that's great. I know pretty soon I'm going to be talking in Sunday school about the clarity of Scripture, and here I am, totally perplexed about what that might mean. And uh, so that's to point out that Scripture varies, but the important point today is that it is given to us in a way that we can understand uh, what we need to understand. And so fortunately, DeYoung comes to, to our rescue in this case and uh, talks about clarity of Scripture. He starts his, his uh, chapter with an example. He was at a conference and gave a talk, and some guy comes up and starts challenging him on some doctrines. 
And every, every time DeYoung would answer him, he'd, that guy would just say, well, that's just your view. That's just your interpretation. And it went around and around and around. Could never get anywhere because that's all the guy would respond with. That's just your interpretation. So, in other words, you just can't know. And uh, that's just that's just not true. You, you can know, and that's the point of today. I don't know how many years ago, but it's been a few. Uh, we were in some setting. I can't even remember exactly where it was, but my friend up here, Art Baker, said something about the perspicuity of Scripture. My response was, Art has been drinking something again. I have no idea what that word might mean. And Art obviously knew what it meant, and most people in the room knew what it meant, but uh, I've, I've teased Art over the years. That, that word does come up occasionally, and so that's uh, my Art Baker word, the perspicuity of Scripture. Uh, it's been thought about for a long time exactly what this means. So uh, the young points to the Westminster, Westminster Confession of Faith, um, uh, chapter 1, and then the seventh point, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. The Baptist Confession of 1689, this is a little bit different wording, and it's probably mostly because this, this version of the Baptist Confession is a modern English version. So it's getting closer to what I can understand. It's also 1.7 of the Baptist Confession. Some things in Scripture are clearer than others, and some people understand the teaching more clearly than others. However, the things that must be known believed and obeyed for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of Scripture or another that both the educated and uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding of them by properly using ordinary measures. So I think you get the point. There's, scripture is clear to the common man. Not every piece of it, but we'll go into that some more. Uh, I look what Grudem had to say about it. He says, the clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. So there's some things to note. There's some portions of Scripture are clearer than others. The one I just read is not super clear on the surface. Uh, the most essential doctrines are not equally clear in every passage, but they, they are made clear somewhere in Scripture. And uh, here's what I take, took out of his book. I think he would call this uh, DeYoung's definition. The perspicuity of Scripture upholds the notion that ordinary people using ordinary means can accurately understand enough of what must be known, believed, and observed for them to be faithful Christians. So it's an important doctrine, I, at least before I started this this preparing for this, I didn't quite grasp how important it is. Uh, I think we, we as Protestants take it a bit for granted, but there's a lot based upon uh, and a lot of differences in our culture and in, in other uh, branches of Christianity um, that, that are here. So it, it is a, a bit of a disputed doctrine. 
there's people that uh, what what he described as the mystical objection to to this doctrine, and that's he he says maybe it's not really an objection, but it's just more of a mood or a, an overreaction. And they basically say God is so transcendent that he cannot be talked about meaningfully with words. Um, they say the Christian faith is utterly mysterious and it can't be put into words. At the least, we should be radically uncertain about what the Bible says. Okay, so that's, that's a pretty big objection. And I, I guess there's some Christians, maybe Christians, that, uh, that would hold to that. The Catholic objection. Some are probably very familiar with this. I didn't really realize there was an objection to it, but it makes sense that there is. Catholics and Protestants agree on the inspiration of Scripture. Um, they, they believe, we believe essentially the same on the inerrancy of Scripture. However, we disagree on the perspicuity. Um, Catholics argue that the Bible as a whole is not sufficiently clear in itself. Um, some parts are incomplete, and it needs to be explained with tradition. And that's tradition of the church. So their, their position is there needs to be somebody, someone, authoritative that can interpret the scriptures for us. So if you think about it, we, we have a, quite a few friends that are Christians. And you think, think about, I mean, as we're around them, I mean, things come up. And it, it's surprising to me, over and over again surprising, uh, how little they know about the Bible. I mean, they just don't know much at all. And that's the reason. They aren't taught to know about the Bible. They're taught to know about the traditions of the church, I think, in general. That, that's a blanket statement, but that's the, at least the people we hang around, that seems to be the case. Then there's the, the, another objection, is the pluralism objection. If it's so clear, why are there so many denominations? Why are there so many books in the bookstore describing all these different things in different ways? Well, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a good one to, to have to argue against, uh, that they, this view questions the very idea uh, that any any of us has sufficient grounds, and so it's just there's just so much out there it can't just can't be that clear. So De Young basically takes on that; those are the objections to it, and he takes an approach of uh, start walking through passages in the Scripture, uh, which we'll do some of those today, and then draw the implications of what what the Bible has to say about itself. He starts with uh, uh, the Word of God is near to us and not far. Um, he begins with an example from the book of Deuteronomy. How many have read Deuteronomy lately? Kind of early in the year, we kind of get to the end of Deuteronomy. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, for you, Art, lately, he's got a, that could be big. <laughs> uh, yeah, so anyway, if you, if you read... Uh, I hadn't thought about it until DeYoung made, makes a point that it's just one big, long sermon. And it kind of is. And it, it has, Bobby, it has a lot of imperatives in there <laughs> uh, based upon indicatives, of course. But there's, there's, it is just these commands coming back. It's, a, um, it's, a, it's sort of an, an exhortation delivering the message as, as uh, it's really the second giving of, of the law. So it, it works its way through up to the uh, 30th chapter, kind of gets to the culmination of the, of the sermon. So if you want to turn to Deuteronomy 30, um, we'll pick up at verse, verse 15. So it's, it's a long sermon, and it's, it, this is reaching its pinnacle. 
in, in verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So Moses reaches the end of the sermon. He's pleading, pleading with them to choose life instead of death by following the Lord. And what the young points out is look what's right before this. Uh, picking up in verse 11 through 14. We, we read 15 forward, starting in verse 11. <clears throat> For this command I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear, hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So before he gets to the peak of his sermon, he's telling them, this message isn't far off. You can get it. You don't have to go across the sea. You don't have to go to the heavens to get it. It's being delivered right to you, and you can understand it. So right there Moses is saying, he's reassuring them that the Word of God can be understood. It can be obeyed, not perfectly or meritoriously, but the way that pleases the God who has already graciously saved them. Um, the picture of the Word of God right here in Deuteronomy is one that can be, it, the Word of God can be comprehended. Uh, you don't have to go far to find it. It's not obscure. Uh, what God wanted His people to know is not hidden. It's very plain to them. So, quoting to Young, the Word of God is near, not far, right in front of you, ready to be understood and obeyed. <clears throat> so, moving on from that, and that's one way of looking at it, out of Deuteronomy, and he continues on just looking at what the Bible says itself. The Bible confirms its own clarity throughout. Some places you can go e easily is, is one place is the Psalms. Um, and alluding to God being light. Uh, when you think of, of light, um, light brings clarity. Uh, we were at our son's house last week. Let me just say that the uh, guest bathroom is not on Pete's list of high priorities. Okay? So that's a single guy. Those of you who don't know him, a single guy, 30, 
you from the younger 30s could care less what's going on or what's what's about the bathroom. It's clean, don't get me wrong. But the light in there, my goodness, I could look in the mirror and the light is the only light in the rooms up here. It's about a 10-watt bulb. And so, you know, I shave, and I don't know whether I shaved all sides or not. So Rob's got a huge advantage. You know what you got, don't you? Uh, anyway, I can't see. You get older, it gets worse. And uh, light brings clarity, and such as it is with God's Word. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Same chapter, 119, 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Uh, Psalm 19, 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I'll pause here a second. So we kind of got started on the concepts. Any questions or comments so far? Besides that, I need to take a drink. It's too simple, isn't it? It needs to be for me. <clears throat> Another, a couple of examples of the clarity of the word playing out in the Old Testament. Do you remember the story of, of Josiah? Josiah was the king that became king at age. We got 14 or something voted up here up front. Eight. Eight is correct. Eight years old, the king, uh, which is pretty remarkable in itself. Well, you re when he was, uh, I think, about 26 years old, he decided to send a servant to pick up the cash. So go get the cash and bring it back so that we can give that cash to these people that are working on the house of the Lord. So he does. He sends a servant off, and the servant, you remember what the servant brings back? He brings back the cash, and he brings back the book of the law. Remember that? Okay, so in, if you want to follow along, it's 2 Kings 22, 9 through 11 is what I'll be reading. Second Kings 22, 9. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it to the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. What happened after that? Give you the Old Testament history test here. What happened after Josiah tore his clothes? Repented. Had it read, I think, and then massive reformation. Things were torn out. Idols were torn out. Massive. There's a long description of all the changes that he made in the kingdom. Because he heard the word of God. Okay? That's an example of Josiah. It's simple. He got it. Boom. He did it. 
Another example you remember is from, uh, would be from the person Ezra, and particularly in the book of Nehemiah. You know, those could be one book there and on, on into Nehemiah. If you want to turn there in Nehemiah 8, uh, that's a pretty remarkable story too. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, and from early morning until midday. Don't get any ideas, Blake. Uh, early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women of those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Skip down to five. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, and their list of others, the Levites, helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So the people understood what was being read, and they had a little help. But they understood what was being read. It wasn't just their interpretation. They knew what the meaning of God's word was. And you could point to several places. Um, they, the, the people went on to, to you know, repent and worship. Um, it, it, it greatly affected, um, greatly affected them because they understood. Uh, so let's, I'm going to take a little tangent here. So we saw that the professionals got involved there, didn't we, in that passage. So the people understood, but they needed, needed a little bit of help. So we can't deny that there's that role. Okay? So, so some people are gifted in, in understanding maybe more than some of us are, and that's the role of the preached Word of God, the taught Word of God, it's a, it's a deal of the body of Christ teaching each other in various settings. So there, there is a place. This, this doctrine doesn't eliminate the idea of deeper study and deeper understanding and some having even deeper understanding than others. So we're not talking about that everybody's got to be on the same plane and all we do is just read the Bible to each other. So does that make sense? Any comments about that? Yeah, Art? You didn't hear? Uh, he pointed out that there were several Levites. It wasn't just one. There were several, and they all agreed. They didn't go teach at different interpretations. Uh, they, they must have all agreed, and they, they taught the people. Um, okay. De, De Young on, on this point here, the Old Testament, is quoting, In fact, the warp and the woof. What's the warp and the woof? Which is? He said the horizontal lines of the linen. Oh, just what I was thinking, Tom. 
I had absolutely no idea. He's, he's right. I think it's linen and anything that's being woven, I think, is it's the warp and the woof. Um, I had to look it up. Um, the warp and woof of the entire Old Testament assumes that holy words and holy texts are adequate vehicles for the transmission of God's intentions and desires. So he's saying the whole Old Testament, you can just see it all the way through. Um, and this isn't limited to the Old Testament. I'll quickly go to an example of, of uh, a Jesus. Many times Jesus appealed to the text of the Old Testament to help settle matters. Uh, one of those, and he always thought of the Old Testament as being authoritative. This ends, this ends the topic when he quotes those things. So here's one of them. Uh, in, in Matthew 9, this is after the calling of Matthew, and the Pharisees are in dining, and the, I mean the, the tax collectors are in dining, and the Pharisees are observing, and they're saying, what's going on here? You've got all those nasty people in there. So here in chapter 9, verse 12 and 13. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, uh, but those who are sick. Uh, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus is arguing, if you will, with them, giving them an answer, and he calls upon the authority of the Old Testament uh, to make, make his point. There are, I'm sure, numerous other examples that could be uh, taken there. Um, the next area that he goes into is, is what's at stake. What's at stake if we don't have this doctrine? <clears throat> this is what I hadn't really thought about very much at all. <clears throat> he says that this doctrine is one of those that you really don't miss until you don't have it. And uh, I think that's, that's true. So quoting to Young, if we lose this attribute of Scripture so plainly taught, if not simply assumed in the pages of the Bible, we lose some of the most precious and hard-fought truths the church must have if it is to grow and flourish. There's a lot at stake, this doctrine. He names four things that are at stake. The first is the gift of human language. Uh, the second is the gift of human freedom. The third, what God is like is at stake. And fourth, whom God is for is at stake. So we'll take each of these and go through, try to go through what, <clears throat> give you the best explanation that I can of what the uh, young says here. <clears throat> Dealing with the gift of human language being at stake, the argument would say we can't put God in a box. Can't put God in a box of human language, and, and uh, if we tried to do that, he wouldn't be God anymore. So DeYoung points out that that has some, that statement like that, that you can't put God in a box, and so we're not going to be able to understand him with what he has for us in Scripture, has some false assumptions built in it. Uh, the one assumption, if we can't, uh, if God can't be described exhaustively, then he can't be described at all. That's the assumption they'd be making. So. Two, Scripture is not God revealing himself to us, Remember, this is a false assumption. God is not re revealing himself to us, but rather the record of humans trying to understand God. So it's just a record of humans. That, that's where we get our Bible. Third, human language is so irredeemably flawed, inaccurate, and impotent as to render it an unusable means of divine communication. Okay. So that would be the argument. Uh, 
that they take. So what would be wrong with that? How about the one about God can't be described exhaustively? What would we, how would we answer that? Roxanne says it's true. So we can't know him? She says we can't know him. <laughs> she says my statement was wrong. <laughs> like to pick on Roxanne. Right. Yep. That's very well said. She said you can know him truly, but not comprehensively, and that is exactly right. That's true. I was thinking about that the other day for eternity. Even when we're with him, I think, we're not going to know all of God. We will learn for the rest of eternity about God himself. I think I'm right in that, and that's an awesome thought. That We will continue to grow in our love and knowledge of God forever. And forever is even longer than Art's lived so far. That's a long time. Yeah, well. <laughs> okay, so what about the second one? A scripture is not God revealing himself to us, but the records of humans trying to understand God. We just say that's just not true. That's just not true. It's God's gift to us. Uh, and then human language, irredeemably flawed uh, and inaccurate. He points out that what we should, how we should look at human language is not about it being flawed. It is flawed. It's a divine gift. Who spoke first? What did he say? Let there be several times over. God spoke and it came. God spoke to the first man in words that could be understood. So in itself, human language is a, is a divine gift. It has its flaws, it has its limitations, but it's a gift from God. And so to try to push it off to say it's too limited, too flawed, and inaccurate is overstepping. Uh, Young points out, God is the divine speaker antecedent to all human speaking. He did it first. and He communicated and we came from him and in his image. So... Uh, Quoting to Young, human language is a divinely created means whereby God from the very beginning intended to make himself and his ways known. The second thing that he points out being at stake is, I hadn't thought about this much at all, is the gift of human freedom. Human freedom being at stake. <clears throat> As all you historians know, I always look at Bobby when I think of historians. He, he knows this stuff. Uh, m much of Western culture comes from Christianity. I mean, it has its basis in Christianity, one way or the other. I mean, it may be Roman Catholicism that, uh, that influenced, but the West is influenced by, by Christians. And, and so he, he says that perspicuity is one of the foundations for religious liberty uh, in the West. Uh, it means, if we have, understand this correctly, it means that we aren't ever forced to go against our own consciences. The Word of God infiltrates our hearts and minds, and if that's what God says, the liberty in the West says, at least now, uh, you don't have to go against your conscience. You have that religious uh, liberty. Uh, he, he quotes... Uh, 
a guy named Herman Bavink, probably butchered that one. Uh, this is the quote, for the denial of the clarity of Scripture carries with it the subjection of the layperson to the priest. So if you, if you follow that, we're, we're subject to the priest. If, if we can't understand the Scriptures on our own, we must be, as a Catholic tradition uh, does, subject to that interpretation. So we, we should always keep in mind that bad interpretation is out there, and we can do it ourselves, and we need to be obviously careful, but you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. <clears throat> the third thing that, that he points out is at stake is what God is like. And uh, DeYoung references uh, one of Carson's books, uh, D.A. Carson. Um, been here twice. It's hard to imagine that D.A. Carson stood here twice, but even once is hard to imagine, but it's true. Uh, if you don't know him, you should be a fan. Uh, I'm a fan of Carson. Carson can write so far over my head that I can't even grasp a sentence, and he can write on a level that even I can get. Uh, but one thing he wrote is called The Gagging of God, uh, a book about just basically what the title says, I think, about God being gagged. I started to get that book, and then I heard Dennis say something about he was, it's probably an exact quote, but it was more or less that Dennis was wading his way through it. And I thought, if Dennis is waiting, I'll sink. Don't bother. So uh, anyway, you, you did read it, right, or most of it? Yeah. yeah, it's been a few years since that one came out, but apparently an outstanding book <coughs> talking, talking about this subject. <coughs> Excuse me. Try this again. Uh, Um, he, he points out, the young points out in his book, the, the example of a six blind men and an elephant. You heard that story before? Um, so just real quickly, this six, the idea is the six blind men touching an elephant, and they're supposed to tell what they're, what they're touching. So the first one touches the belly, and he says, I've got, I'm touching a wall. Uh, the second one grabs the ear, and he says, I have, a, it's a fan. Third one grabs the tail and he says, "Well, it's a rope." And go, goes on through there. So, <clears throat> with without any of them obviously knowing what what they feel. So the the point of the story is that we are all blind men when it comes to God, and we know part of Him, but we don't really know who He is. We're all blind men. Uh, third, no one is more right than anyone else. All are just grasping in the dark. It's a lovely story, isn't it? So what are the problems with the analogy? Well, we're giving the whole counsel to God. Solution. Yep. That's, that's pretty much right on the biggest flaw that, uh, that the young points out. Anybody else have an idea on it? Oh, okay. Ah, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. Yeah. We're going to touch on that point a little bit more later, but that's, that is exactly right. 
It also assumes that the uh, Rob in parts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. The big flaw that that the young points out that I thought the biggest flaw was that he assumes that the elephant can't speak. What if the elephant does, the elephant does speak? Oh, you're not touching a rope. It's not a rope. It's my tail. Okay. So. Pretty simple, but I mean, this is a simple example, but it's an example that people might use to say that you, you just can't know. We're just too far removed. But the gift of language changes all that. So I know elephant didn't speak in the Bible, but a donkey did, so an elephant might be able to do that. Um, but that's the point. We worship and come to know a God who speaks, and uh, that, that's the key. So to, to uh, Marty's point, uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this is absolutely critical. The uh, young didn't spend a lot of time on that. I, I uh, looked to see what uh, what MacArthur had to say about it, and, and he points out that the the Spirit is is required in really three ways. The Spirit generates a, a receptivity to God's word. So in, in us, we become receptive to it. Instead of being negative, some are negative, wanting to point out all the problems, but we become receptive to this is God's word, and the Spirit changes our heart in that way. Secondly, not only receptivity, it's conviction. It becomes The receptivity becomes conviction that this is God's word. It makes sense. It adds up, and we... we develop conviction. And finally, the thing the Holy Spirit gives us is, is a capacity to discern. You've probably talked to people that are not renewed by the Spirit yet and not empowered by the Spirit, and they just have a, it's just, you just get to a certain point and they just can't talk about it anymore or won't talk about it or won't believe. It's the work of the Spirit in all of our hearts to be able to discern and understand. It quickens us be able to do that. So don't miss uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in all of this. The fourth and final thing that DeYoung points out is at stake is whom God is for. So he's not just for the elite or the educated. Uh, even the simplest can understand God's word and be saved. He quotes from Sproul, what kind of God would reveal his love and redemption in terms so technical and concepts so profound that only an elite core of professional scholars could understand them? What kind of God would that be? MacArthur says, The Bible does clearly articulate God's truth. It is not a collection of mysterious writings that require some revelatory key. You may recall several months ago <clears throat> that we we were doing a study period, kind of like this one is. Every now and then we would do a, a study of the lives of, of great men of the faith. And we spent some time on William Tyndale. So if you remember, uh, Tyndale uh, uh, lived about the same time as Luther. Uh, he was an Englishman, so he was in England, and Luther was over there in Germany, and, and he I guess that's where he was when he was translating the Bible. Anyway, Luther was translating the Bible into the language of the common man. And uh, Tyndale was a very 
very gifted and talented linguist himself. <clears throat> and he picked up on that, and he became convinced that that's the right thing to do because God speaks to the common man. And so he set out on a, a journey of translating the Bible into English. And he ran into, I guess it would be an understatement to say, a few roadblocks. Uh, the church, uh, certainly the Roman church and the church in England was not in favor of that. They, I guess, is it Latin that they used at that time? Or Latin at that time. And uh, they opposed him completely. And he ended up, Tyndale ended up, he was doing translation and he got in trouble. And he ended up having to run for his life. So he took off to Europe and actually was hanging out in Germany and some other places. And he was all the while translating the Bible and, and smuggling copies. He would make copies. Printing press was going in. That's a big deal. And he would smuggle copies in textile shipments back to England. And so it's a pretty, pretty clever little deal that he had going. But he, he did get caught, and we'll go into that in a second. Uh, but he uh, once was in an argument with the church leaders about whether this should be done or not. And one of the quotes that he says that DeYoung had in, in the book here, If God spare my life before many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. So that was probably a pretty big slap in the face to whoever he was arguing with. Uh, but think about Tyndale's confidence in the perspicuity of Scripture. He's saying, all i got to do is get it into their language, and they'll understand. He believed in it. Okay? I said he got caught. He got caught, all right, and he got burned at the stake. And the, they, they say the last things he said is, Oh, Lord... Open the king of England's eyes. And I think they slit his throat and burned him. Is that right? They burned him, I know. I think they slit their throat. For, it's a terrible, terrible deal. Did God answer that prayer? He did. He did open the king of England's eyes, and he accepted the English scripture into the church. Something like 80% of Tyndale's translations ended up in the King James Version of the Bible. So it's the Bible some of us old people grew up with uh, came from Tyndale because he knew that if the people could read it, they could understand, and you know what happened in, in Reformation and, and all after that. So indeed, his prayer was answered. So in summary, uh, Young says, God has made his message plain to all of us. If only we have eyes to see. I'll stop there. I've got more to, more to do. We have a lot of time. So any comments on this? I'm just going to summarize from here. So, Mikey? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you even take that to, to the notion of there is no truth. And, and so how, how would we ever know? And, and it, it's showing up in the society big time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, certainly the higher-ups in the power struggle. And, and there'd probably be, I, I don't know, there'd probably be all sorts there. Some that 
clearly understood this is a battle of power, and, and we've got it now and we don't. Probably some down underneath that really didn't get it. They just, <coughs> just obeyed the people above them and didn't think about it too much. I don't really know. But, it, boy, it's, it is a question of a power struggle in, in that particular case. You think of the, the the notion of truth and God's clarity, God's revelation to us. <clears throat> There's a whole bunch going on right now in terms of knowledge. I mean, I guess there always has been in terms of knowledge and what's known. You listen to some of this AI stuff that's going on, so all of a sudden we can just type a sentence into the computer and it's going to give us everything there is to know. <laughs> in whatever lingo. Wow. Well, there's, there's no doubt that what's transpiring now, and it has been transpiring for years, things amazing. You know, even 20 years ago, you think about just Googling something. We just like, I didn't even know what it meant. Somebody told me to Google it one time. I, I, did, I remember not knowing what in the world they were talking about. Uh, now it's just common. Uh, but the whole, whole notion of, of knowledge there, can it tell you everything there is to know? No. It can't. It's got to be programmed from somewhere, and and it may be a massive amount of information it's drawing from and can do it correctly, but it's going to miss the law sometime, isn't it, counselor? It's not going to get it right. Um, you hear about these errors now, so it's it's going to be fascinating. But the whole notion of knowledge mixed in, you hear these very smart people talking about it. Often you can hear they don't think there's a God. Or they don't think there's absolute truth somewhere. You can just you can just hear in, in the different things that they say to, to Mike's point. It's just they don't get it. Well, sure they don't. We talked Marty brought up the spirit has to work and then we we understand. Other thoughts? Tom? Yeah. Yeah, and also think about those old testament passages. I don't know, but probably a lot of those people couldn't read, but they could hear. So, you know, when we were talking about Josiah and, and Ezra reading, they were reading the Word of God, and Moses reading, telling them the Word of God they were hearing. But, yeah, it's really not seeing or hearing. It's grasping, understanding what? Discernment, okay, discerning what, you, what you're, you're hearing. I just thinking, too... <clears throat> There are a lot, this, this is where the church plays out in, in the community and evangelism. There are a lot of people that really can't read. They, they can read to drive, but they really can't read. I, I run onto this in the foster care system. So you get these kids that are going, they're graduating from college and realize they can't really, not college, they're graduating from high school and they can't really even really read. Okay, so that's, somebody's got to say it to them and explain it to them. But you still are explaining the Word of God, and if God quickens their heart, they will get it. And uh, that's, that's the point. Good point. Everybody hear that? The concept of the circumcised heart enabling the understanding of God's Word. <clears throat> Thank you, Dennis. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> I began our time this morning <clears throat> reading some verses that I'd say most of you would probably agree are a little difficult to understand. 
And to be sure, there are numerous passages that are difficult. <clears throat> the other thing we didn't really talk about too much is the Bible is infinitely rich. You can learn more and you just keep learning more. The depths of God just keep unfolding. And so it is infinitely rich in those things that you don't understand now. Maybe someday you will. Uh, so it, it's, that's an amazing thing in itself. We, we won't ever fully understand but we can continue growing in that. The message of Scripture in regard to who we are, our need for a Savior, <clears throat> and the coming of the Savior for His people is abundantly clear, and it's plain to all who seek it. I'd like to close today uh, reading a few passages of many that are available that so clearly express God's plan of salvation for all of us. Uh, that even the simple can't miss. So I encourage you as we do, as I do this, is just uh, let the passages you you know all these uh, soak into your your heart and encourage your confidence in your ability to know God and the clarity of His holy scriptures. So if you'd like, you can uh, bow your heads and. I'm going to read four passages that, like I said, you all know. <clears throat> For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Romans 5, 6-8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Psalm 103, 10-13. <clears throat> He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. And finally, Romans 10 starting in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Amen and amen. May God bless the reading of His word today. Have a good one.